You are now listening to the Green History Podcast, produced by Elm Film Studios and presented by AC the Historian. Hello? Hey, نعم Khalifa. شكرا حبيبي Come in أهلا وسهلا يا كبير أقبل ولا تخف إنك من الآمنين ليلة سعيدة يا فيزان I am pleased to see you again Tell me how is your Arabic class coming along? Oof. So you think your teacher is too strict on you, do you? I wonder about the mirror that wants to shine, but complains about being polished. Rumi said that. Young man, remain patient and do not be given to too much complaining. The intelligent man never allows his ego to separate him from the opportunity to learn something new. In fact, the path to knowledge is long and difficult. Only those who have been granted forbearance and sincerity can attain its treasures. If you focus on the teacher's shortcomings and defects, you shall attain very little knowledge and waste much time. Imam al-Shafi'i said it best. اصبر على مر الجفا من معلم فإن رسوب العلم في نفراته ومن لم يذق مر تعلم ساعة تضرع ظل الجهل طول حياته Be patient with the teacher's strictness towards you for the treasures of knowledge are contained in his harsh comportment and whoever cannot tolerate the bitter taste of learning for just an hour shall be left to drink from the cup of ignorance for the rest of his life. You see, Faizan, if you cannot remain patient, humble and open-minded during the course of your studies or even on our adventures and in life in general, then you and I will not be able to go very far together. I need to be able to rely on you as there will certainly come a time and some of our journeys and conversations will push you to your very limits. But when such an occasion arises, I want you to remain steadfast and patient. Follow the story through to the end, and do not react on emotions every time you hear or discover historical evidence that may challenge your preconceived notions. It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without necessarily accepting it. 
as your elder brother and now as your boss, I sincerely advise you to return to school tomorrow and to continue your studies of the Arabic language. Faisan, your teacher has age and experience on his side. You are not even born yet. Still you think that you have understood everything there is to know about the world, about religion, about history. Ya Salam, how can you expect to exploit the vast treasury of Islamic knowledge by relying solely on third-hand translations, abridged summaries, interpretations and commentaries that are written in languages other than classical Arabic in which all source information is written and taught in. La wallahi, al-Arabiyatu miftahul Islam. Indeed, the Arabic language is the key to Islam. And if you are serious about your search of knowledge, you will do all that is necessary to attain fluency in Arabic, at least enough knowledge to read and comprehend the text for yourself. Ya akhi, lughatun wahidatun la takfi. Faizan, it is not sufficient to speak just one language, especially when discussing matters of religion, history and culture. I often do worry about your generation. I really do. But I see hope in you. You are not like the others. Insha'Allah, before the end of this year, you shall be fluent in Arabic. <laughs> One more thing. My young companion, no matter how harsh your teacher is towards you, remember, character makes a man. You must remain polite, balanced and principled, even when you disagree with people on important matters. Manners, that's another thing we could do with having more of. Ahmed Shawki, the Prince of Poets, said it best when he said that nations shall endure as long as their ethics and morality remain sound, but when they lose their principles, ethics and virtues, they lose themselves also. The same principle applies to the individual. You and I cannot aspire to becoming people of value to anyone if we cannot even maintain sound ethical and principled behavior towards our fellow man. I hope to have impressed upon you the importance of respecting knowledge and those from whom it is acquired. However, if you remain principled and sincere, then we shall discover many awesome historical facts together. I promise you that much. Okay. What would you like to drink? Water? Tea? Orange juice? Nikasa Sukasa. Consider yourself at home here. Oh, by the way, my secretary informs me that the package she sent to you last week did not arrive. In fact, it was returned to our offices for some reason. Anyway, when she's back tomorrow, I shall inquire and request of her to keep it here. Inshallah, I'll give it to you next week. It will be essential equipment for our journeys from now on. Also, 
We have an hour or two before the next portal is open for us to travel, that is. In the meantime, I challenge you to a game of chess. Show me then what the youth of America is made of. <laughs> you can go first. Afwan, I almost forgot to ask you if you had any questions from last week. Yes, yes. There is a lot more to discuss on this subject. Absolutely. You're right. King Abdul Aziz was facing tremendous challenges ahead of him. But despite the overwhelming odds, Abdul Aziz's joint enterprise with the Bedouin army had come to full fruition over the course of the next couple of decades. Your turn again. Hmm. Not a very skilled and experienced chess player, I see. Not like King Abdul Aziz, for example. To begin with, he may have been an exceptionally young commander. However, he was an ambitious and relentless desert warrior with an undeniably powerful and awesome physical presence. No doubt, it would have taken an exceptional military mind to conquer such an unforgiving and vast terrain. In fact, his campaigns went from strength to strength and many tribes pledged allegiance to him. By 1922, Abdul Aziz had full control over the Najd region and three years later, in 1925, the Al Saud were champions of the Hejaz. That same year, in fact, the army of Abdul Aziz had finally conquered Mecca in a momentous and historical feat, wherein the incumbent rulers, the Hashemites, who had ruled the city for 700 years, were finally vanquished for good. A few weeks later, in January 1926, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud was declared the king of Hijaz. But Abdul Aziz unveiled his pièce de résistance in 1932 by renaming the Arabian Peninsula after his own family. Thus, Saudi Arabia was born. Well, he was certainly born to rule. Even though the Al Saud had always harbored ambition to regain their ancestral post as rulers in Arabia, it took just one man to surpass all of their expectations. Abdul Aziz ibn Saud was endowed with physical strength and a fierce warrior mentality that was only matched by his military genius. He was indeed a visionary whose ambition to rule Arabia was driven by a deep desire to unite its various tribes under a single banner of faith. <laughs> I know, I know. I sound like a well-paid advocate of Saudi supremacy. <laughs> Seriously though, I'm a historian. It is my duty to convey history as accurately and objectively as possible. Emotions, well, they have no place in the realms of serious academic discourse. If we allow emotions to guide our judgment, then we must begin to delve into the dangerous realms of propaganda and selective truth-telling. Don't you see that the Europeans, whilst denouncing the horrors perpetrated by Hitler and his generals, still study his life, objectively? I mean, he literally caused the deaths of millions of men and women while plunging Europe in the depth of darkness and destruction. Yet, and still yet, they educate themselves on his life. The European will not fail to recognize that Hitler certainly possessed an exceptional oratory and leadership skills, 
and they produce documentaries on the Third Reich in order to understand it better. Phase, does it not strike you strange? You know, how so many of us allow emotions to transfigure our historical lenses. I mean, in strict military terms, who can deny that Alexander the Great was a genius surpassed only by very few generals in history? But from a moralist perspective, he was certainly no angel. He plundered, ravaged and raped his way through to victory time and time again. The Persians specifically don't have very fond memories of him, yet we study his life and mission with serious intent. Thus when we as historians discuss the life and achievements of King Abdul Aziz, we do so in earnest from a purely academic and factual perspective. King Abdul Aziz was an exceptional figure, a visionary, a revolutionary and a statesman. He was also a desert diplomat as part of his ambitious plans to strengthen the political allegiances with every major tribe of Arabia, King Abdul Aziz contracted numerous marriages with the daughters of each tribal chieftain, resulting in 22 marriages, bringing forth 45 sons, not counting the daughters of course, because the Arabs did not count women and girls. Though to be fair, it's a cultural practice that predates the Al-Sa'ud dynasty. Also, as his popularity and dominance grew in Arabia, the king's views and objectives began to take on a more diplomatic frame, in contrast to his earlier perspective, when he was a revivalist revolutionary. You see, things look very different when you're the underdog fighting the establishment, but when you become the establishment itself, priorities and perspectives do tend to change very rapidly. This made him the object of admiration and hope for millions of others. However, King Abdul Aziz, as great as he was, was not in himself a monolith. Everything he achieved in the Hejaz and in the Arabian Peninsula, he achieved with the implicit and unrelenting support of the Ikhwan, the Bedouin army he had trained and commanded in the early days. And they had remained as hungry and determined to the original message of revivalism as they were from the very beginning. They were in fact even more determined now to enact the teachings and objectives of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab now that they had a king who was able to finally legislate and implement the terms of the pact between Muhammad ibn Saud and Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab back in 1744. What better time to finally impose the complete agenda of the Wahhabiya movement than now? Or so you'd think. But in reality, King Abdul Aziz did not see the same thing that his army saw. And why would he? After all, he was from the Al Saud clan and they had a very long history of leadership in Arabia. His battles and missions were for the restoration of their past glory and to advance the Al Saud legacy into the future. But the Ikhwan, on the other hand, were a bunch of desert Bedouins who had no prior claim to glory. Their mission was clear and simple, to rid the Arabian Peninsula of heresy, innovation and disbelief everywhere. And the Ikhwan were very loyal to the very core teachings of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab and that was not going to change. Funny game, isn't it? Chess. You know, all these soldiers and pawns, 
little more than sacrificial lambs in the service of some king or queen. Anyway, King Abdul Aziz did finally realize his ambitions in the end. But what was the king of Arabia to do now with a bunch of desert Bedouins once his royal ambitions had been satisfied? Your turn. What happened to the Ikhwan? Well, the truth of the matter is this. King Abdul Aziz was no longer in need of their service. They had lost their utility and their mission had become obsolete. However, their presence could be tolerated so long as they did not exceed the boundaries. Perhaps they may even be repurposed for the safeguarding and defense of Saudi Arabia. One thing was certain though, at least for the Al Saud, there could be no more jihad offensives in or around Arabia. Those days had come to an end with the establishment of the Saudi Kingdom. King Abdul Aziz had finally accomplished his quest to become the master of Arabia. The Ottoman Empire had crumbled into the abyss. The British were on his side and the world was his oyster. Ironically, it had been very easy to blame the Ottomans and criticize them for their decadence and materialism whilst he was an underdog. However, anyone can set fire and destroy an ancient monument but it takes several centuries and countless experts to construct its foundations and maintain its frame. The Ottomans were not perfect, but they were able to manage their empire for much longer. King Abdul Aziz was soon to realize this lesson the hard way. You see, the establishment of a new Arab kingdom was the goal of King Abdul Aziz. There is no evidence to suggest that he had ever had any ambition to go beyond this. Thus, once his goal was achieved, he and his royal household were at the leisure to enjoy the spoils and luxuries of royalty. The Al Saud began to espouse newfound tastes and could be seen to indulge in lavish excursions to European countries and other occidental destinations for the purpose of tourism, education, cultural enrichment, political engagement, and leisure. Things had changed, and their entourage also changed. One could understand that their old friends may begin to feel neglected, isolated, and eventually rejected. The Ikhwan had long espoused a very strict Islamic lifestyle, which if you remember from our previous journey to the Najd, was specifically imposed on them by the scholars in Riyadh as part of their socialization program established by King Abdul Aziz himself. This is what they were trained for. That was the agreement. So it must have been devastating for these devout and strict warriors to witness the metamorphosis in the person and message of King Abdul Aziz in such a swift move. For the Ikhwan, it was time to cash in their check. King Abdul Aziz must have been very aware of this. A man as intelligent and experienced as he could not have failed to detect their acute frustration and growing impatience with the situation at hand. Something clearly had to be done, but in the meantime, the situation had to be managed. You see, a masterful general knows that sometimes you must retreat in order to attack, and sometimes it is wise to lose a battle in order to win the war. Sadly, 
the rift between King Abdul Aziz and the Ikhwan was beginning to engender a growing sense of frustration and suspicion given the fact that King Abdul Aziz's policies were closer to desert diplomacy and not the more orthodox and pious sentiments of the Ikhwan who were calling for the complete adherence to the literal interpretation of the Sharia. Leading members of the Ikhwan became more unsatisfied with the ever-changing policies of King Abdul Aziz following the establishment of Saudi Arabia. It would seem as if his original commitment to the strict and pious ambitions of the Ikhwan was waning and weakening in time. Soon enough, however, some of the key protagonists from within the Ikhwan organized a secret consultative meeting in order to discuss the king's failures to deliver on his original mission. Checkmate. <laughs> better luck next time, better luck next time. Listen, it is almost time now. Let us get going. We should aim to return here for Fajr. Follow me. again back in history we must hurry now it is almost time for the senior council of Ikhwan to begin their meeting I believe we're 15 minutes away let's go arrived. Let us tie the horse here and approach the tent by foot. I don't want them to detect our presence, even for a moment. Once we reach the tent, it will be possible for us to hide behind the bushes and to listen to their conversation without being noticed. And since you don't speak Arabic yet, I shall translate for you. Okay, over here. Follow me. We have a good spot here. Listen, they're about to start the discussions right now. One moment, let me tear a tiny hole in this tent. We should be able to see who is in attendance from this angle. Bingo. Faison, have a look over there to the right. Behind the old man in the center. Do you see those two sitting on the floor? Well, the one with the grey upper garment and the black turban, that is Sultan bin Bajad. He belongs to the Utaybi tribe and is one of the main leaders of the Ikhwan. He's a very stern and devout warrior. You can see it in his face. The men here have high regards for him. Now look to the left. Do you see the man sitting just next to him? The one with the brown shoes? Yes, that is the second most influential leader of the Ikhwan. His name is Faisal bin Sultan al-Duwaysh. Faisal is not like the other Ikhwan because he is actually a prince from the tribe of Mutair. 
but for some reason he decided to fight alongside King Abdul Aziz during the early days of struggle. Faisal is also faithful to the message of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab. Move over. Let me see who's talking. I'll translate for you again. The speaker just said that he believes that the king is not trustworthy enough to uphold and maintain the distinction between Iman and Kufr. That's some heavy allegation. They're also questioning his commitment to implementing the teachings of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Apparently, he's not taking his policies far enough. Wait. The council is also citing evidence that King Abdul Aziz has sent his two sons, Prince Faisal and Prince Saud, to England and Egypt in pursuit of education. England and Egypt are both Darul Kufr, the abode of disbelief, and according to what they believe, it is impossible for any Muslim to travel there, let alone study and stay there. Yes, the speaker also points out that he doesn't agree with the members of the royal family doing such things in public as it contradicts the principles of Al-Wala wal-Bara towards the Bilad al-Muslimin. Hold on. I can't believe what I'm hearing. They actually want King Abdul Aziz to punish Iraqi and Jordanian nomads who were caught grazing flocks in the bordering regions of Saudi Arabia. These guys actually consider the Iraqi and Jordanian shepherds to be kuffar simply because they don't follow the same teachings of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. No wonder why the king is so worried for the stability of his kingdom. It's nearly impossible to build a long-lasting treaty with neighboring Arab countries if their citizens are being killed at random by the Ikhwan. They're not even safe while making Hajj and Umrah. Okay. And they also want the king to stop wasting time with the conversion of the Shia community here in Saudi Arabia. The council is saying that the Shiites are disbelievers and should be converted to proper Islam or else wait they just accused King Abdul Aziz of being an innovator they're citing the fact that Saudi Arabia is now importing foreign appliances and commodities such as cars telephones microphones fans and generators I guess they're right I mean the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and his companions never used microphones when giving a khutbah. Shh. Okay, okay. I think it's coming to an end. We'd better get moving before anyone comes out and sees us. Quick, let's get back to the horse. I sense that there may be more security on the lookout and I cannot risk for both of us to be caught. If I'm not back in an hour, pray for me. Okay, see you in a bit.
Alhamdulillah, I made it back. That was a really close shave. Let's get back to the office quickly and give you the update there. Before we begin, let me make a quick call. Hello? Yes, it's me, AZ. Please, the same as yesterday, but this time make it two portions. Shukran. Okay, now to get back to the point. The meeting between the Ikhwan and King Abdul Aziz was no light entertainment. There were lots of finger pointing and condemnations going about, mostly from the Ikhwan towards the king. They repeated nearly everything they discussed the week before. Only this time the king was able to hear it for himself, and so did the ulama. Anyway, towards the end, both parties came to a consensual agreement that the peace would be maintained on the basis that King Abdul Aziz would stop being so diplomatic and mild in his policies, especially towards the Shia community in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia but also towards other Muslims who had not embraced the teachings of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab and were therefore considered mushrikeen and kuffar. Also, the king's promises not to disrupt the old practices of pilgrims in Mecca and Medina had to be reviewed. He was not to allow bid'ah to be taking place under his rule. On the other hand, the king specified that the Ikhwan were to obey his leadership and refrain from meddling with military and political affairs. He petitioned the ulama to issue a fatwa forbidding any calls to jihad without his command and express permission. The ikhwan had no business waging any further attacks in or out of the kingdom and were ordered to abandon military activities and ambitions with immediate effect. At the end of the meeting, the scholars who presided had sanctioned the views and terms of both parties and the meeting was adjourned. I thought I caught a glimpse of Faisal and Sultan eyeing up the king. However, I had to get out of there as quickly as possible as the guards were preparing the royal exit. The rest, as they say, is history. This is a research file that one of my senior analysts was preparing last month. He compiled a thorough analysis of what went on in the kingdom following that historic meeting between the Ikhwan and King Abdul Aziz in front of the Council of Ulama. According to these findings, the terms of agreement were not upheld by the Ikhwan and they would soon thereafter revert to their staunch opposition of the king and his policies. In fact, they had ambitions to continue the military campaigns of King Abdul Aziz on their own. Although he conquered virtually all the Central Arabian regions and tribes, there were still a few select locations which were under British influence and were therefore not to be meddled with. The king understood his boundaries very well and had no intention of entering these regions as they were clearly under British control. Quite obviously, if he did antagonize the British, 
there would be a hell of a price to pay for it. Therefore, King Abdul Aziz purposefully kept clear of these regions. However, the Ikhwan could not tolerate this policy and demanded that all and every single region be conquered and governed by the teachings of Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. There were to be no exceptions. In fact, the Ikhwan were so hard-headed and extreme in their interpretation of Islam that they literally considered anyone who held a different view to them to be a deviant and therefore had to be refuted, exposed and attacked until they repented. But what this Bedouin army had failed so miserably to comprehend was that the military consequences that would be suffered should they threaten British interest in that region were far beyond their capacity. The British had bombs, aircrafts and machine guns. It was by no means an even playing field. But no one succeeded in talking sense into the Ikhwan. It seems as if their earlier victories in the Arabian Peninsula had convinced them that they were chosen by God and that the armies of disbelief could never vanquish or defeat them. However, it wouldn't be long before they realized their misjudgment. Between 1927 and 1929, the Ikhwan launched many military campaigns and openly rebelled against the ulama's earlier injunction forbidding any further jihad without the authority of King Abdul Aziz. Foolishly, they proceeded to launch military campaigns and operations in Arab regions that had signed treaties with the British. It was clear now that the Ikhwan were purposefully rebelling against the ruler and the ulama. They were now clear vigilantes who had just signed their own death warrant with blood. The Ikhwan were fair game. The reckless and zealous actions of the Ikhwan provoked a swift and relentless response from the British forces who retaliated almost immediately by bombing the Najd region following the destruction of an Iraqi police station. This act of antagonism was in violation of an early agreement between Britain and Saudi Arabia, declaring a neutral zone between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. As these events grew out of proportion, the king became alarmed and requested that the British dispatch warplanes stationed in Iraq to fly into the kingdom and launch aerial bombing missions over the Ikhwan strongholds which were situated near the Iraqi-Saudi border. Yes, it had gone that far. Needless to say, hundreds of Ikhwan were killed in the bombing, sending them into a mad rage against the kingdom itself. The conflict had reached peak crisis levels and it was time for the kingdom of Saudi Arabia to finish it off once and for all. King Abdul Aziz raised an army against the Ikhwan and went to war. What made it even more peculiar was that the Saudi army units were reinforced by British aircrafts, four of them to be exact, and with the support of 200 military vehicles, all of which were manufactured and operated by British soldiers. So it was very, very clear to the Ikhwan that King Abdul Aziz had switched his sides and had new allies. The Ikhwan were no doubt disgusted beyond belief when seeing this. Hello? Khalifa, yes please, yes, tell them to come and deliver it here. That was the restaurant next door. I've been placing orders with them for the last two weeks. 
every evening in fact. I'll be spending a lot of time here researching and writing transcripts for my new documentary. Oh, it's not on the Saudis, it's on the ancient history of Somalia and the mysterious kingdom of Punt. However, I can only find the time in the evenings now, just as well. I find the night time a lot better for study and focus. Shukran Habibi. Here, this is your portion. You must be hungry as well. Bilafia. Okay, so where were we? Yes, the Battle of Sibylla. It took place on the 30th of March 1929. The Ikhwan were obliterated by the joint British and Saudi military coalition, wherein the Ikhwan lost its leadership along with 500 soldiers. There was simply no match for King Abdul Aziz and his superior British artillery. Following that crushing defeat, some surviving factions of the Ikhwan continued to fight the king in other areas of the kingdom. However, they were easily defeated and the revolt was quelled. So what happened to the key leaders of the Ikhwan movement after that? That's an excellent question. They were not all killed during the Battle of Sabila. Faisal Abdul for example, who if you recall was one of the main leaders and a prince from the Muter tribe, he managed to flee the battlefield and found safe haven in Kuwait. However, he had sustained serious injuries and soon surrendered to the British forces stationed in Kuwait. They sent him back to King Abdul Aziz in Saudi Arabia, where he would spend his final days in prison. He died in Riyadh on the 3rd of October 1931. His death was attributed to some sort of medical complications. As for the main leader of the Ikhwan, Sultan bin Bajad al-Utaybi, well, he was also able to flee from the battle and found somewhere to hide in one of the desert reformation camps, somewhere in Riyadh. I guess when it was all over, the only place to go to was where it all began. Ironic, isn't it? Anyway, the king's forces tracked him down and finished him off. He also died in the same year, 1931. So how did King Abdul Aziz feel about these unfortunate turns of events? Well, I would think that he would be very relieved, don't you? I mean, they were finally defeated and disbanded, and the looming threat of a greater uprising was completely shattered. Now the kingdom can go about its business in peace and security. I must add that not all of the Ikhwan were destroyed. Some of them had relented and were pardoned by the king. He had decided to grant respite to those most loyal to him by allowing them to remain in their settlements, the Hujar, those desert camps where the socialization program was taking place. Maybe he was still attached to his early subjects. Who knows? Anyway, the less radical and threatening remnants of the Ikhwan were thereafter permitted to continue receiving government funds and support. Their religious zeal was to be channeled towards a more civil form of social governance. You know, they could become watchmen for the king to ensure that people prayed on time and that men and women were not seen together in public. You get the idea. In any case, 
the king was clearly not one for wasting a good opportunity to recycle Bedouins. <laughs> As they continued to become a part of the new kingdom, they had gained the trust of the king and he absorbed them into the Saudi military establishment. In good old King Abdulaziz fashion, they were renamed and repurposed to serve his vision. He rebranded them the White Army. Later, the White Army evolved into the Saudi National Guard, now an integral part of the Saudi military establishment. I actually like King Abdulaziz as a leader. I may not agree with all of his decisions or his direction, however he was able to exercise remarkable restraint and foresight against the Akhwan, considering the fact that they had wanted to destroy everything he established in his new kingdom. Not many people would have given the Akhwan a second chance at all, or maybe he should have wiped them out completely, because the story does not end there my friend they would certainly return to haunt the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia only a few generations later. Alright, it's time to pray. I'll tell you the rest of the story next week. I'll also give you the new gear then. Let's go.